0: Open your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in our base text again, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, we are in technically week 3, really week 4. Many of you know we took one of the weeks and we split it into two. And so we are in week 3, but really week 4 of our series, uh, The Power to Change. And uh, we are continuing this series and, and talking through how we can see real change take place in our lives as followers of Christ. Uh, I pray it has been an encouragement to you and a strengthening to your spiritual walk and your walk with Christ to see how we can surrender uh, those areas in our life that that we're trying to change. We want to see change, habits that need to change, new habits that need to start. As we surrender that to the Lord and begin to work those things in and through us, we can praise him and glorify him because he's doing that work in us. But I know it can be frustrating. I know it can be feeling defeating when, when you try and try and try. And we said last week that some of us were at a place where, man, we're just seeing success and victory and we're reaching those goals. For some of us, it's, it's not been so smooth a ride. There's been some ups and downs, some bumps in the road. My encouragement to you is continue to keep your eyes on him. Let's set our eyes upon Christ, right? We look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. I I love that phrase in Hebrews because not only did he grant us the gift of faith that he gave, as Romans says, every man a measure of faith that we might come to Christ and believe. But also it says not only did he author that faith and be the origination of that faith. He started that faith in us because, by the way, we only love him because he first loved us. But he also finishes that faith. You know what that means? Philippians 1, six that he which begun a good work in you will complete it. And so I know as a follower of Christ, we get, we get discouraged and we feel defeated and when we stumble and we fall, but that doesn't change who we are in Christ that he will hold on to us and he will draw us close to him and he will see that we will see him one day in heaven as his sons and stores us and we move forward. Amen? We we move forward. And so wherever you're at, here at the end of January with those goals and desires that you were praying, the Lord would work in and through you. uh, Keep your eyes on him. Keep focused on him and let him continue to work those things in your life. Again, it's not easy when we commit an area of our lives to the Lord. We will face opposition internally, right? Your flesh wants you to fail. Our external enemy, right? Satan wants us to fail. The world system is against us. And so it's not going to be easy. We will face opposition, but Christ and in his strength, he will give us that strength to take that next step and that next step. And then we take another step of surrender and then we take another step. Of surrender, And we begin to see over time with consistency the development of what we're going to call some holy habits this morning, some holy habits. And so before we dive into the idea this morning of developing those holy habits, and I'm going to slaughter that phrase a few times this morning, so just bear with me. I want to kind of jump into that base text that we've looked at so many times already. And I pray it's becoming so familiar to you in a good way. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. The Bible says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. As we've seen every single week of this series so far, and we've mentioned it every week on purpose. And we're even going to dive into in just a moment here more about the word of God and the vital role that it plays in our daily lives. The word of God is the resource that God has given to us to give us the knowledge of what needs to change in our lives and then how God can change those things in our lives. It's amazing that the word of God is the source of the knowledge of what needs to change. Right? What things in our lives need to be different, how we need to think differently, act differently, speak differently, arrange our days differently. Maybe how we invest in others, how we use the things that God has given to us to be a good steward of the many riches and gifts of grace that God has given us. It's all in the word of God. And then not only does it tell us how to, or what needs to change, but it tells us how to change, how to see effective change in those areas, how to make godly decisions, how to look to him. And I know what you're thinking, but, but the Bible doesn't literally tell me every single thing I need to do. Like the Bible doesn't say whether or not you should get a 401k. Right? It doesn't specifically spell that out. And I understand that frustration at times. We go to the word of God, like, what do I do with this decision? Is it A or is it B? And the Bible's seemingly kind of quiet in that area of life. It doesn't specifically say, yes, you shall move to this state and you will work in this job and you will do this. So what do we mean when we say it gives us the knowledge of those things that need to change and how to change them? We're saying that either by pattern of scripture the things that we see lay out in Scripture in the lives of others, the pattern of things that God has done and how he desires to work in our lives, or by principle of Scripture. There's just general principles within Scripture that can apply to different areas of our life. We believe that Scripture is all-sufficient in pattern and principle, meaning it may not specifically tell you where to move, what job to take, those kind of things, but it will lead us to make wise decisions to weigh those things out. To be able to look at those things and say, okay, in which way can I glorify God in this? Or how might God be leading in this area so that I might do this or that thing for him? Or or how is he leading in this way? And we look to scripture for those principles of how to make decisions. And yet sometimes we we pray, we seek wise counsel, we're in the word. And at the end of the day, God's kind of response to us is A or B. A or B is fine. You can go there, you can go there, but when you're there, do this, do this, right? Love me and honor me when you're here or love me and honor me when you move to this state. Like that's the idea as well. Sometimes God just says you can move here or so again, scripture is all sufficient in that way, either by principle or by pattern. And I want to look at an example in the word of God of God doing something powerful as a principle we see here, and it does lead to a pattern of behavior But I want to see how God can do something so powerful through one man's simple commitment to one small habit. So I want to look at an example of God working mightily through one man's decision to commit in one small, simple habit. And see how God worked powerfully through that. Go to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. So... Over in the Old Testament there, and now if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can just turn to page 625. So there are Bibles there in the seats around you. If you're using one of them, you can turn to page 625, Daniel chapter 6. So Daniel chapter 6, we're just going to reference two verses In Daniel 6. Very popular story. Many of us have studied Daniel. We actually went through Daniel um, on Sunday evenings back here in the fall and into the winter and walking through the convictions that Daniel held and how we as followers of Christ can develop similar strong convictions. And so if you weren't a part of that, I believe some of those or most of those should be recorded. We weren't in the auditorium for a couple of weeks because of the children's musical, so those weeks probably didn't get recorded, but the rest would be on there, or most of them would be on if you want to go back and listen to that from our Sunday evening service. And so Daniel chapter 6, and let's look at verse 5. So Daniel 6 and verse 5, then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now, you got to go back and read all of Daniel 1 and and the foundation of what's happening here. But basically, these men want to find a reason to come against Daniel, to catch him in something, to get him out of authority and kind of get him out of their way. And they want authority. They want rule and control. And Daniel's kind of in the way. And so we need to remove Daniel. And the only way we can do that is by finding something that we can use against him that involves him and the law of his God. Because that's where we're going to attack him the greatest. There's nothing we can find. Daniel's not a perfect man. But there's nothing he's done. There's no scandal. There's no thing that we can look to and say, well, I can use this thing or that thing to overthrow Daniel or to get him out of the, the position he's in. It has to be something between him and is God, and if you read the text, you're going to find out that basically what they do is they kind of in a subtle way trick the king into creating a law command that you cannot pray to anyone but the king. And so they create this law, this decree kind of by manipulating the situation a little bit here and getting the king to buy into his own pride. And so the king sets forth this law. It is now the law of the land that you cannot pray to anyone or anything except the king. Now I go down to verse 10. It says this. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, that means it became law. This is now the law of the land. This is what the law says. It says this. He went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for our time of worship. We thank you for being the God that you declare yourself to be, not the God that we've mistakenly tried to make you. We thank you for being the God that is is wrapped in glory and honor, majesty, worthy of all praise, all worship. There is no name greater than the name of our God. And so we gather to make you known. We gather to worship you for who you are. And we, as Pastor Greg said, we, said, we cannot wait for the day that we worship around. It's, it's powerful. Not because of how it makes us feel, but because it lifts up the name of Christ. And it magnifies who you are, which changes how we go into every single day. Now, Lord, primarily we worship you because of who you are. And as a result of that, by being your sons and daughters in Christ, we are blessed and filled with your joy and your peace because we're in your presence. And the more we know who you are and worship you for who you are, the more we will experience that joy and that that peace that passes all understanding. And so, Father, as we worship you this morning, I pray that you would speak through your word, that our hearts and our minds would be open to what you have for us, that you'd help us, Lord, to develop As we're calling them, Lord, holy habits, but really, Lord, they're just Christian disciplines that will guide us and direct us into living in a way that honors you. And what a greater way to worship you, Lord, than to live for you. It's great to sing praises to you, and and I love it when I, I, I look around the church and I see people singing and lifting our voices to you, Lord. I know sometimes people think, well, I'm not a very good singer. I I can't really sing very well. Or or maybe they would say something like, I'm just not much of one who would sing. And and Lord, I pray that in spite of all those things that we would lift our voice. Because Lord, in our culture, we sing for all kinds of things. We can at least sing for you. And so thank you for a time of praise. But Lord, beyond this morning and the words that we sing, uh, again, as Pastor Greg alluded to, may our lives be expressions of worship. So, Lord, help us to grow in these habits, these disciplines that we're going to talk about this morning. Thank you for the example of Daniel. Again, not a perfect man, but a man who made a decision to be committed in one small habit that I believe greatly impacted his life. And, Lord, you used to, to, to make him who he was so that you could use him for your glory. And so, Father, again, thank you for all this. Give us wisdom in all this. Spirit, guide us and direct us as only you can. As we desire to honor you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Here in Daniel chapter 6, we see, again, a familiar story. But I want to point out a word there in verse uh, 10. At the very end, it talks about that he, as he had done aforetime, that, that word aforetime in the King James. Uh, that word literally could be translated as, as before. Some other translations use that word or say that word could mean just as he had done previously or as was his custom or just as he had always had done. When you hear somebody say, I'm going to do something that I always do. I've always done it just as I've previously done. This is my custom. We could use the word habit for those things. Could we not? So Daniel prayed three times a day, windows open or curtains open, looking out the window And now note, he didn't do this in response to the law. He didn't say, okay, you want to do that? I'll show you. I'm going to go throw my curtains open. And in spite of you, I'm going to pray this way. No, no, no. He he wasn't being antagonistic, outwardly antagonistic of the things that were going on around him. It literally says this was his habit. He did this every single day. And he continued to do it even when the law of the land said you can't do that. Because he realized way back, right? In chapter one, that he had purposed in his heart that he would honor God, not defile anything to do with his God. And so what does that mean? He made a commitment to a small, simple habit of prayer. And that simple habit of prayer, that simple decision to say, you know what, I'm just going to pray three times a day, every day. This is my custom. This is my habit. When he made Prayer, a holy habit, his decision to commit to prayer consistently, long before it became a point of contention, literally changed everything. It changed everything. You and I have been given, as we talked about last week, all that we need to live godly. And we'll dive even more into that tonight for a few moments as we get into the word. The grace of, we've been given all that we need to live godly. And now, We've been gifted the grace of God to grow as a follower of Christ when we walk in holy habits. Now, why is this so important? Because we must remember, as we talked about last week, and if you want to follow along in your notes, there's notes on the app. You can go on there and North Goodland, BC in your app store, and you can download that and follow along with the notes today. Just go to media, messages, and then today's uh, date. But we talked about this last week, that real change isn't the result of behavior modification but is what? The result of spiritual transformation. So real change is not merely behavior modification, just starting and stopping a behavior, but real change is spiritual transformation. And since at its core, it's spiritual, we seek a spiritual why, we talked about that last week, from the word, and we seek spiritual habits that will strengthen us. So we need a spiritual why. What is the biblical reason why you want to see that change either stop or start in your life? Why is it that you want to pray more? Why is it you want to be in the word more? Why do you want to be a better steward with your finances? Why do you want to grow in relationships with other believers? Why do you want to start serving in the church or doing different things or eating better or taking better care of your body? Why are those things things that you feel led to do? It can't just be the physical It can't just be the temporal. It can't just be what I think is best. It has to be driven from a spiritual why. What is God's reason for me doing this? Why would this or how does this honor God in my life or use me in a way that would honor God? One of the things I've heard recently that has kind of resonated with me is as I try to get better at taking care of myself, I had somebody tell me not that long ago, a couple years ago, say that if you really are praying for God to use you for a long period of time, then are you doing the things that will allow your body to be used by God for a long period of time? And that just resonated with me like, yeah, praying between our two ears and says, use common sense, take care of yourself. He gives us that knowledge to do that. And so, again, when we talk about these habits that we need to develop, they're not just, okay, I'm going to start this for 30 days because I think it's best. No, we call them holy habits because they're leading us spiritually to be strengthened. We have all said or heard it said something like this. I hope I can change. And while we know what they mean and what we mean when we say that, the truth is hope alone won't change your life. Habits will. You can hope all day. I hope I'll change. But if you never make the decision to create a habit and to live in that habit of change, you won't see the change. God often does big things through small habits. Never underestimate how God can start something powerful in your life through one small habit. It's not the big changes that we make, the big choices that we make that lead to great things in our life for Christ. It's the little things that we do every single day behind closed doors that nobody else even knows about. That's where God works. And that's what we see from Daniel. Why was this an issue of contention? Not because he started praying when the, the, the tension came and the, and the opposition came. No, he was praying long before. And in fact, way back when he had to interpret the dream, he went to the three Hebrews, the other Hebrews that were there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and said, hey, not only I need to pray about this, would you pray for me about this, that God would give me wisdom in this? I mean, prayer was a consistent part of his life. And it's through that prayer and that time with the Lord that I believe God used Daniel tremendously. So I'm going to walk through this morning, just a couple examples of some holy habits. Now this is not an exhaustive list list. You can probably add to this many things I'm sure. And this is not about trying to add things to our lives. It's about allowing our lives to be full of the things they should be full of anyway. So it's not like I need to do this and this it's no, this is just a natural overflow of my relationship with Christ. And so the holy habits that you and I can start Today, as a follower of Christ, let me say this again. None of these things will save you. We don't do these things to be saved. These are things that are produced by the Spirit because we are saved. And we have to keep it in that order. So many people think, I'm saved because I do this or I do that. I met with somebody one time. We were talking over lunch. And, and this was when I worked at a, a hardware store here in Brown City. And, and I was on lunch. And I had a habit of just trying to bring my Bible to lunch. And because I could read and usually I sat by myself and I just found it as a time that I could read the word. And you'd be amazed how many times conversations started just from me sitting with a Bible open. People would come up to you and go, well, wow, what are you reading? That looks like a big book. I say, it's the Bible. And they go, the what? I'm reading the Bible. And they look at you kind of puzzled and go, why are you reading the Bible? Like, isn't that just for church? And like, that's boring and all that. And when they say the Bible's boring, I look right at them and say, you've never read the Bible. There's still so came over and, and said that she was a Christian and I, well, what do you mean by that? And I think I know what people mean when they say that, but I asked her, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I don't do this and I don't do that. And I, I don't go to church like I should. I don't pray like I should. I don't, and I do this and I probably shouldn't do that. So I'm a bad Christian. And I said, you're thinking all wrong about this. You're not a good Christian or a bad Christian. If you're in Christ, you're a Christian. And then the overflow of that relationship leads to the decisions we make. But so many Christians go, well, I'm a bad Christian. God doesn't really love me as much as he loves the good Christians. Do you see how, how defeating that can become so quickly? If I was like them and the good Christians, God would really love me. But I'm kind of like the second class over here. I'm kind of the, the, the stepchild over here. But well, God doesn't have any stepchildren. We're all his children. He doesn't look down on any of his children. He loves you as his sons and daughters. And so I know what they mean. And I, yes, we should strive to live in a way that honors God. And, and we shouldn't make bad decisions that would harm others or harm ourselves in sin. And, and we should gather for these things. I understand that. But don't start the thinking with I'm a good or bad Christian because I do this or that for God. If you're in Christ, you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian. Now let that be the result of your life. Follow him and let him guide you in all of those things. And when you stumble and fall, you turn back and you repent and you receive grace and, and you move on. But so many try to do these things to prove they're a Christian or to gain God's acceptance. No, we have his acceptance fully in Christ apart from anything we do or don't do. You don't earn grace. Grace is a free gift. And praise God it is, because if you could earn it, you couldn't. It's the same reason why salvation isn't based in you. You can't lose your salvation because you didn't earn your salvation. He holds that for you. You're not holding on to Jesus. I said, I'm holding on to Jesus with everything I got. No, you're not. He's holding on to you with everything that He has, which is enough to hold you for eternity. I know what people mean. I'm holding on to Jesus and we should lean into Christ. We should hold on to him. But if we're being honest, we let go of Jesus a whole lot more than we hold on to Jesus. And it don't take much to let go. So I'm so thankful that yes, we should hold on to him. But even when I let go of him or try to let go of him, he never lets go of me. And so as a result of that relationship, what are some holy habits that you and I can choose? Again, there's an effort here. We have to put in some effort here. God is calling us to make choices to walk with him in real life situations. So the first one I want to talk about is the habit of digesting God's word and prayer. The habit of digesting God's word and prayer, taking it within ourselves. We have said this with redundancy on purpose. There is no greater treasure in our lives as followers of Christ than time spent with the Lord in his word and in prayer. There's no greater time. You cannot invest your time in any greater way through the course of a day than spending time with the Lord. I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care what you do for your career. I don't care how good you are at your finances and investing in that way. There is nothing you can do with your time in the course of a day that is more valuable to your life today and your eternity than spending time with the Lord. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing how God works. This wasn't on purpose. And we talk about digesting God's word and spending time in God's word. And uh, I left my the Bible I usually use when I'm preaching uh, in my car, and we drove the minivan. And so I sat at my desk and I pulled out my notes, and I always grab my Bible, which I leave on my desk. That's my kind of my preaching Bible if you will have another Bible that I use for my study time and so on. And so I go to grab the Bible and guess what's not there? The Bible. And I literally went now I have a shelf full of Bibles, but various translations, different styles, some are older, some are newer. And so I thought, oh, I'm gonna need to use a different Bible this is weird. This is going to be different, you know, because you're just used to certain scriptures and where they are and all that. So I just grabbed the one. Uh, this is actually the Bible that I was given when I graduated high school, uh, by our former senior pastor in 2000 here at North Goodland. And so, uh, I stopped using it primarily. Anyone want Romans? Okay. Um, but you know, this morning I was sitting there thinking about, um, just this Bible. And I was reading, I, I used to write, I don't do this as much anymore, but when I'd be in chapel at BBC where I went to school or different uh, sermons, I would write notes inside, you know, the, the fly leaf. A lot of you do this. Um, actually, I, I saw I got one from Bill Blount. Die? where is die? Bill Blount. I got a message from him somewhere back in 2002. And, and so when I, when I was looking through here, it was amazing to see notes and little highlighting things and, and uh, sticky notes that my mom would give me before she passed and, and things like that, little encouragements. And, and it was just such a great reminder of the value of God's word and like how people have invested in me just like people have invested in you through the word of God. And I love this, that we still do this. If you've been with us in, this, in June, we do, uh, all the graduates will come forward. Pastor Greg will give all the graduates a Bible. Now, I, I'm not going to ask them if they have it with it. But as far as I know, I think some of the graduates in the room still have their, their Bibles that they received from, from us. Yep, Deanna's shaking her head. Yep, Danielle. And so, so I, I love this. And there's a phrase in the, in the flyleaf here that previous pastor wrote. And and I used to write it in, uh, when I was youth pastor here, I would write it in the Bibles as well. And it's something that has always encouraged me uh, through my Christian life. Now, this was 2000. I was saved in 98. So I'll say about two years when I received this. And so it just really spoke to me. And he says this, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Has always resonated with me. It's such a simple truth that, that we have been given a resource that will guard us and lead us and, and guide us away from sinful decisions. And all we need to do is just read it and digest it and take it into ourselves. And the Spirit of God will work that in us. And what does the Bible say? That we hide God's word in our heart. Why? That I might not sin against him. We feel victim. I just, I have to sin. I have to give in. No, you don't. That's a choice you make. It is your flesh and the enemy that tells you you have to give in to sin. In Christ, you are free. Uh, well, yeah, but you don't understand temptation. Uh, you're right. I don't, but God does. He prepared you for it through his spirit. He's given you the word to guard you against it. You don't need to make excuses. He's given you the victory. But we neglect the resource that provides us that knowledge and that strength. We need to develop the habit of digesting God's word in prayer. I know you're busy a lot going on. I understand it. We're all so busy, but you're not too busy for this. And if you are too busy for this, what can you cut out to make room for this? I guarantee you what you're cutting out is not nearly as important as this. I promise you. Well, I'm tired. Hey, look, I understand. I'm not a morning person, but we can make time for this. The word of God is our bread, our milk, and our meat. It's, it's all we need to take into ourselves. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, we're not going to turn there, but Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, what does he defend against that temptation with? He defends with the word of God. He says that man will not live by what? Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, the Bible is the collection of words that have proceeded out of the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16. For God's word, all scripture is what? Inspired. What does inspired mean? God-breathed. So when Jesus said, you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, he's saying you live by the inspired word of God. And that is this collection of scripture that we hold in our hands. Not only is the word of God our diet that we consume, our bread, our milk, our meats, but also our time of prayer is literally our oxygen. Our time of prayer is our oxygen. We need it to survive in this world. J.C. Ryle said it best when he said this, prayer is to faith what breath is to the body. If we want to grow in our faith and see that change in our lives, we need to be disciplined. We need to be digesting, develop in the coming years. We're planning our thoughts. Now I'll be honest with you. This is one that has always been a battle for me. I'm thankful for God's grace because I haven't always disciplined my thought life. And by the way, it's, a lot of us are probably this way. It's so easy for someone else to get us thinking something we shouldn't. But by the way, it's not their fault. Well, I wouldn't have thought that if they wouldn't have said this, that's a lie. You might have thought it earlier or later, but you would have thought it. Because we're responsible for where our minds go. We are the ones that are called to discipline our thoughts. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Turn there with me. Second Corinthians chapter 10. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can just turn to page 817. So Second Corinthians chapter 10. So Paul writing here to the Corinthian church as a word of encouragement to the body. He says this in Second Corinthians 10 and verse 5. And there's so much in this chapter that's so encouraging, but we're just going to zero in on verse 5. He says this, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And here's the, the key. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, we said this last week, this again is not a God-then-me thing. This is a God-through-me thing. This is not me saying, okay, God, I want you to do this. I'm going to sit on my hands. You take care of my thoughts. No, no, God is working through us to give us the ability to take our thoughts captive. Paul makes it clear that it's God-through-us that applies to this idea of taking our thoughts captive. As I was reading through here and making some notes, this thought came to mind. And I know it's been true in my life and and maybe it's been true of yours. But when I talk to people, I hear this a lot. Every act of sin starts with a non-imprisoned thought. Every act of sin that we commit starts with a non-imprisoned thought. Those thoughts you let roam free that you choose to not take captive will lead you to an act of sin. Those thoughts that you dwell on, that you know you need to take captive, but for whatever reason you choose not to, will lead you to an act of sin. Paul says we take every thought captive, and I love that term. This is actually a military term, and it means literally in an act of war to take captive a prisoner. Another way you could say this is, Paul says, I subdue Every thought to the obedience of Christ, I ensnare every thought. I trap that thought to the obedience of Christ. These thoughts that are raised up against Christ are brought into obedience to Christ and his will. We do this by the power of God in us, through the spirit and the word of God before us. I love what one commentary said about this, and I want to read this in its entirety. It's a little lengthy, but I found it hugely beneficial. He says this false religion and secular philosophy have created thinking that has imprisoned the minds of millions. It is a true spiritual battle. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Second Corinthians 4, four any idea, opinion or worldview that asserts itself above Christ is unnecessary and is reflective of the devil's pride. Such thoughts must be taken captive and made obedient to Christ. Those who know the truth must confront error with the weapon we've been given, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And how do we take these? How do we wage war? All things are become new that I don't have to think the way I used to think. I don't have to feel the way I used to feel. That's why I love this terminology Paul uses to take it captive because there is a war in us. There's a battle going on in our minds and in our hearts. And our minds are warring against the spirit to think things we shouldn't, to do things we shouldn't. And and sometimes in the moment, the flesh wins. And we cry out for grace and we seek forgiveness and we ask God to, to give us victory over that moving forward. But there are also times where the spirit has victory. And that thought is taken captive. And you know if you've been there where you've been tempted to think a certain thing about another person or about a situation and you, you pray and you seek God and you say, God, would you give me wisdom in this? Would you remove this thought? Would you give me victory over this? And then you have victory and the joy and the peace and the confidence to know, God, you are so good to help me overcome that. Now, here's the scary thought. Tomorrow, we're going to do it all over again. This afternoon... All over again. Later on this evening, all over again. You get in the car to go home. All over again. If you got children, all over again. Because the Lord says to be, let your words be full of grace and, and, and mercy. And your children will say something or do something. And your words don't want to be full of grace and mercy. What are you doing? Why would you hit them? Put it back. Stop touching that. What are you, why, why did you eat that? As they get older, it's different, but it's the same. (laughs) What are you doing? Knock it off, right? Those thoughts are important. We need to keep control of those thoughts. So I want to ask you this morning, what continual thoughts about yourself, what continual thoughts about God, or what continual thoughts about others are you allowing to roam free in your mind? If I could encourage you with the word of God, Stop. Just stop. Ensnare those thoughts. Dwell in his word and let his word dwell in you richly. Thirdly, and again quickly, the habit of devoting time to godly meditation. The habit of devoting time to godly meditation. In the book of Psalms, I'm not going to turn there for time's sake, but Psalm chapter 1, verse 2 right? What does David say? I delight in the law of God, and in it I meditate day and night. He doesn't literally mean 24-7. He's just sitting there doing nothing else but thinking about the word of God, not being active. Of course, he's fulfilling responsibilities. He's doing his things that he needs to do. What it's saying is it's kind of a way of describing, it's continually on my mind. It's always on my mind. I'm always thinking about the word of God. I'm dwelling in the law of God. Psalm 19 and verse 14, uh, the psalmist cries out, let the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, right, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what does that meditation refer to there? I believe it's a time that we spend just dwelling in him, just thinking about him and who he is. There is a great renewing of our strength spiritually when we practice dwelling and meditating upon the Lord. I'm not talking about New Age meditation with the incense and all the other nonsense. I'm talking about just that word meditate, which means to just really dwell in on something, to to let our minds just center in on something with no distractions. But I'm just thinking about this. Thomas Watson wrote in the 1600s, actually, uh, he's a Puritan author, and he wrote about this idea of meditation. And I found it amazing that even in the mid to late 1600s, he said, people aren't making time to do this because they're too distracted. In the 1600s, <laughs> I read that and I thought, what do you got to do? Like, I don't, I mean, like, yeah, you're like churning butter and you're like doing, I mean, okay, you're like doing all this other stuff. But like, like I think about, like, imagine someone like that being like transported to 2024, You want to talk about distracted, like this man would probably lose his, weren't spending time really dwelling in the fullness of who God is and what God has done. He says this when he talks about this idea of godly meditation, and I, I love this, reading this recently in a book that I was going through. It says, meditation may be thus described. It is a holy exercise of the mind, whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance. And seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. He continues, hearing the word, hearing teaching begets knowledge, but meditation begets devotion. I thought that was so good we hear the word teached and we hear doctrine preached and we think that's good. I'm, I'm growing in the knowledge of these things. And that's so needed, by the way, we need to grow in those things of knowledge and wisdom and, and all those things of the word. But he says, but when we dwell on those things, just us and God, man, that will lead to a devotion towards God, not just knowledge of God, but a devotion to God. This time is when we sit alone, just our thoughts and the Lord, not necessarily filling the time with prayer, where we're speaking to God per se, but just the time we're dwelling before him. Now, Thomas Watson, actually, Watson in his, this book that I'm reading, he gives some suggestions of some things that we can meditate on. I, I reworded them a little bit just for our, our understanding, but I love these things. I just want to give you a, a couple examples of things we can be meditating on while we're talking through this. And again, if you want a copy of my notes, I can give that to you as well. What should we meditate upon as followers of Christ? Here's some suggestions. We think of our corrupted nature. Now, that doesn't sound very pleasant. We think about how corrupted we really are in our natural state. What does that mean? We think about and dwell on how lost we were without Christ. And that's a good thing. It's so good to dwell in who we were before Christ. Who we are apart from Christ. That we are corrupted to our very core. How is that a pleasant thing? Because it reminds us that we don't deserve grace, and yet he gives it freely. That he loves us that much. And that's another thing we can dwell on. The death and passion, meaning the the death, burial, resurrection, the the ministry of Christ on earth where he suffered for us. The death and passion of Christ. What love and grace has God shown you? And dwell on that. The gift and need of repentance What do you and I need to turn from? Every day we're turning away from things that we know we need to turn away from. And what a gift of God that we can dwell on that. Our evidence of heaven. Do you show fruit in your life of knowledge of Christ, relationship with Christ? Do you ever just sit and dwell and and evaluate your life, not to doubt your salvation, but as Paul says, to work out your salvation between you and God. To test, to see that you're in the faith. And do I see fruits of the spirit in my life? Do I feel a pull towards the things of Christ? Do I desire the word? Do I desire gathering with the body? Do I desire these things? The word of God says believers should desire. I mean, do I ever just sit and think about, am I a Christian? And not just because I think I'm a Christian, but because based on God's word. And if you want a biblical text to look at, all of First John is all about knowing that you're in the faith. That's why John wrote 1 John to the church. Hey, if you're doubting your salvation, here, here's some tests that you can see. Are these things in your life? And if they are and you've trusted Christ, then you're saved. But do we ever just meditate on those things? Or do we just rush through the day and go, yeah, I'm saved because I said a prayer when I was a kid. I'm saved because I go to church. I'm saved because I do good things. Or do we really meditate on, is there actual fruit in my life? Does my heart desire the things of Christ? And lastly, as another example of just one of many, we can meditate upon the uncertainty of all things apart from Christ. We meditate upon the uncertainty of all things apart from Christ. Why would we do that? Because it will lead us to avoid the lure of the world's temptations. It will lead us to avoid the lure of the world's temptations. Now, this list could continue but the idea is simple when we do this and we'll fight to keep our lives and our minds busy, be still before the Lord this week and be renewed. Lastly, uh, another habit that we can develop in our lives is the habit of deciding to gather Hebrews chapter 10, very popular verse, verse 25. It warns us not to forsake the assembling together as the manner of some is according to the King James translation what does that mean, that we, we choose to not do as others do? Well, that phrase, as the manner of some is, can also be translated as is the habit of some. So the author of Hebrews is telling us there's a habit among some to forsake the assembling. Don't make that your habit, but in turn, have a habit of gathering together. Have a habit of coming together as the body of Christ. The word of God calls us to decide to make worship with the church a habit, not an occasion and not a once in a while special event, but a habit. It's something I do habitually. I just gather because I'm devoted to this time. I've decided to commit to this. Now, when I say that, I know life happens. Jobs happen. Sickness happens. We live in Michigan. Bad roads happen. Things happen. I understand that. And we're not talking about legalism, where we show up to check the box and go, I'm good. I showed up this week. No, we're talking about deciding to gather because I want a habit of coming together with the body of Christ. Why? Because we are worshiping the God that Revelation 5 talks about. He is the God that will be worshiped by tens of thousands upon tens of thousands upon thousands of thousands. And we get to, if you will, rehearse that now. And we get to worship him together and be an encouragement to one another and pray for one another. How amazing is it for for us to talk about all that God is doing? To be praying for and and praising God for how he's bringing healing in the Dave Channel's life. We get to do that because we're the body of Christ. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, I get the prayer concerns on my phone and I'm at home. I don't really need to gather. But oh man, to come together and to see one another that you've been praying for. To look them in the eye and say, man, how you doing? I'm praying for you. How can I serve you? How can I minister to you? And when I hear people say when they can't come for just a few weeks in tears saying, I don't think you get how much I love coming to church. I just want to be there. And it's a situation where at the time, nobody would have questioned this person not being here because they physically couldn't come to the service. But Sandra and I sat with them and they're in tears. I just, I just love the church. Why? Because they made a decision to gather As parents or grandparents, create the habit for your families to gather. Your children will grow up with habitual church attendance. And that's a good thing. When I was doing youth ministry, I I heard people were saying, well, you shouldn't drag your kids to church. Because if you force them into church when they're a kid or a teenager, they're going to hate it when they grow up. That's a lie. Because that's not in the word. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, parents... Nurture your children in the Lord, unless they don't feel like it. <laughs> honor your children and, and, and help them to honor the Lord. Unless, you know, they're 16 and they don't want to get up and go to church. Of course not. And, and by the way, parents and grandparents, don't just drop your kids off for church. Show them it's a family value. Uh, all through youth ministry, when I, 11 years I was doing youth ministry, I'd have parents drop their kids off for church and go home. All you're reinforcing is this is important for you, but it's not very important for me. And one day when you get to be an adult, you don't have to go either. That's all you're teaching them. This is for kids. It's not for me. Man, listen, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, you are investing in this generation. What habit are you instilling in them? The habit of forsaking or the habit of gathering? Hebrews 10.25 says you're doing one or the other. And so let's be... A generation of believers that instills in the younger generation that, that this is a family commitment. This is a everyone commitment that we're gathering together. When we make it a family value, it will greatly increase the potential habit for your children and grandchildren to continue to make church a consistent part of their lives. Of course, they must make their own choice. You don't make them do anything. But if I have to make a choice between prayerfully creating a habit for my children that they will grow to continue to gather in church when they're in their 20s and 30s and 40s versus saying, I'm going to leave it up to them when they're 14, 15, and 16. I'm going to choose that as long as possible, I will influence them to make this important. When they're 20, 25, 30, that's their choice. And I pray God will lead them to keep gathering. But I can't control that. All we can do is lay the groundwork that we can lay now while God has brought them into our homes and into our influence, if you will. The holy habits that we've talked about this morning are only available to us because of God's overwhelming grace. None of these will save us, but every single one of them, when practiced consistently, will draw us closer to the Lord. 2 Peter 3.18, last reference, and then we're going to pray. 2 Peter 3.18 says this, But grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So what's my encouragement to you as we have a time of invitation? I I want you to do something this morning. Maybe you can't come forward. Maybe you're going to pray in your seats and that's totally fine. But I want you to do something this morning. I want you to honestly begin to evaluate. Are these holy habits consistent parts of my daily life? Am I digesting the word of God and prayer? Am I... Devoting myself to to this idea of consistent meditation upon God's word? Am I deciding to gather together to make this an important part of what I do? What of these holy habits that we've been talking about, do you believe God is leading you to start today? Pick one. Start simple. Start small. Start today. Big changes in growth will come from small choices we make every single day. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. And as we have a time of invitation, I want you to to begin to evaluate where you are with the Lord right now. And maybe you would come forward in just a moment with heads bowed as you begin to pray. And maybe you would come forward and say, Lord, I need to develop these holy habits. I need to be committed to make the choice to say that I'm going to digest the word. I'm going to take it within me. It's, it's the diet that I need. Prayer is the oxygen I need to survive. I'm going to decide to make a habit of the gathering. Not just on Sunday mornings, but whenever I can be there. If it's possible, I want to be there. Understanding that sometimes things happen and we can't always. And, and, I, and I get that, but I, I want to make a habit, Lord, that when I can be, I want to be there. I want to discipline my thoughts, Lord. By your grace and through your strength, I want to take every thought captive for your Will to be done. And Lord, I want to develop the the habit of holy meditation, just dwelling in your goodness and your grace, that I might be renewed, my mind renewed, my heart renewed, and my spiritual energy strengthened. Lord, whatever it is that you're doing, I pray that you would be glorified in all of this because all of this is for you. It's not for us, it's not to build the brand of a church. It's not about me. It's not about this praise team. It's about you and what you're doing in our hearts and lives. It's about your word going forth and accomplishing what only you can accomplish. My words are feeble. My mind is finite, unable to comprehend the depths of your word. But you, by your spirit, can guide us and direct us into deep truth and guide us into what we can do and how we should live for your honor. So, Father, would you be glorified in all of this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Is God leading you to develop one of these holy habits we've been talking about? Would you come and say, Lord, I need to start this habit today? Maybe as a husband and wife, an individual, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, whatever it is, make that decision today. Start small and watch God do big things as we continue to worship him.